You're listening to John Anderson Direct with Jay Bhattacharya. Please note that John Anderson Direct is recorded live via online streaming, which means that sometimes the audio quality is less than optimum. Jay Bhattacharya is a professor of medicine at Stanford University. His research focuses on the economics of healthcare around the world, with a particular emphasis on the health and well-being of vulnerable populations. He became a well-known commentator on COVID-19 when, in April this year, he showed that the virus is far less deadly than the World Health Organization initially stated. Jay, I'm really thankful for your time today. It's very good of you. The US currently, as I understand it, has a little over 5 million confirmed cases of COVID-19. You've recorded something like 165,000 deaths. It's emotionally and politically charged to the extent that I think it's hard to get a real handle on what's happening and what ought to be done now. Can you give us a feel for what is happening uh, in America uh, and why it's so hard to get the facts out on the table? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's as you said, politically charged in a way that uh, I've, in my lifetime, I've never seen a medical issue before. Uh, and um, the other thing that's challenging in the United States is that it's, uh, and we talk about the United States as a, as a country, but in fact, it's, it's lots of different regions that are experiencing the epidemic very, very differently. So creating a single national policy is a very challenging thing. I mean, I suspect the similar, same is true in Australia as well. It's, it's very different. Yes. Um, so it's it's uh, uh, it part some parts of the country like New York, New Jersey, uh, you know the Northeast had their bit with the epidemic. I mean a massive pain with the epidemic in March, April, and they look like they've come out the other side. There are very few cases and very few deaths there now. Uh, the, the, the South, the Sun Belt, uh, seems to have gone up and now are starting to get on the other side. But they've been through a very rough last few months. Uh, and then the rest of the country is waiting nervously to see what happens next. Um, c- cases have finally started to come down after after the after the rise, but the it's but it's not one country; it's multiple regions, and I think that is politically incredibly challenging. And you've been responsible for some putting some very hard numbers on the table, as I understand it. The World Health Organization initially estimated that. Uh, around 3% of the people who contacted uh, COVID-19 would die. You put very different numbers on the table, uh, more, I think, in line of one or two per thousand. Why is it proven so difficult to get a real handle uh, on the, more, the, the mortality rate uh, of this disease? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a question of what's visible and what's, what's not visible and hard to see and have to be inferred. It's very easy to see the people that you identify as having COVID, they test positive, what fraction of them die? And the World Health Organization, that's what they were reporting, that 3.4%. The, the, the set of people in the early days who were identified as having COVID, 3.3% of those died. And that's, you know, that's just an undeniable fact. You look at the number, you look at the people who died, and you say, wow, this is going to be a terrible epidemic. And it has. It's proved to be a terrible epidemic, but not as terrible as a 3.4% epidemic would, would be. Um, in particular, what we found out since the, 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 those days, those early days, March, January, February, March, is that, in fact, it's, the disease is much more widespread than you would expect. Uh, we know this from studies from around the world. There's now 50 or more studies around the world. I've sort of started to lose track of how many because they, they all sort of tell the same story. Um, people spread the disease and 
about half of them, somewhere on that order, don't actually get very many symptoms. They don't show up for testing because they don't think they're sick, but they have antibody evidence of having the disease. And so when antibody studies are done, um, they, they, are they t in the United States, for instance, the CDC did a study, found that 10 times more cases, and about 10 times more people had antibody evidence than the cases. So you started 5 million. I mean, I think it's probably more on the order of 50 to 75 million have already got, got uh, COVID in the United States. That sounds really alarming. I just saw a study out in Pune, India, 57% or 58%, very, very, very high rate of, uh, of COVID, uh, whereas the cases would indicate a very small fraction of that. There's an invisible epidemic going on at the same time as the visible one. And the invisible epidemic is much less severe than the visible one. That, that, that's, but that's a really important fact, which is like where all of our policies focused on the visible epidemic yeah. and our fear is based on the, the statistics that comes out of the visible epidemic. But in fact, if you want the whole picture, well, how really deadly is it to me? You want to take into account the invisible epidemic as well. So, so to ask a layman's question, you said it was a terrible thing that the numbers might be much higher. Couldn't it also be a good thing that it points the way to herd immunity? Is that a possibility? Is that something that might be the other side of the coin? Yeah, it certainly is a possibility. I mean, I, I think, um, I mean, it's, it's in some sense, uh, uh, that also is politically charged. Herd, herd immunity means what? Herd immunity means that enough people have got the disease so that if an additional person gets it, they will infect only one or one other person. They won't infect two or three and you won't get an exponential growth curve. Right. So that, so, but that, uh, there's a lot of controversy in the literature over, over by some among scientists about what that what that number actually is. Is it 80 percent of the population? Is it 20 percent? I've seen credible reports on both. Um, so uh, th that not that the larger number in some sense is actually means that we're much further along the epidemic than you might expect. That's a that is a good thing. Absolutely. It also means more people have got it, which is a bad thing, right? So it's 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 both. And at the same time, it also means that it's less deadly than that 3.4 percent. It's much more on the order of one, would uh, be two, say two to three in a thousand. And for children and for young people, it's even lower than that. In fact, for children, uh, I mean, I was looking at the numbers for the flu. The flu kills more kids in the United States uh, than, than COVID has this season. Yeah, well, the, the, the age difference is an important one I'd like to come back to in a moment with some interesting work that's been done in Australia. But uh, firstly, uh, just on this, how bad is it? I think back in April, you said it may be not much worse than nasty bouts of flu or flu epidemics. Broadly speaking, is that still your view? I, I think it's, I, I, I've revised my view since April. It's a little, it's worse than the flu. Absolutely worse than the flu. Maybe two to three times worse than the flu, I think. It could be, it could be more times worse than the flu, depending on what, what your view of the flu is. I mean, flu itself is a nasty disease. And if we didn't have vaccines, mm -hmm. we'd be facing this every season. Um, so I think uh, I, I don't want to underplay it by saying it's like the flu. I mean, I think the flu is a terrible disease as well. Uh, this is much worse than the flu. Absolutely. It also has different patterns. The age patterns are really important here because it doesn't spread the way the flu does. Children aren't, aren't as, as important to the spread of the disease as, uh, as it is for the flu. And the, the disease is less deadly for the, than the flu for young people and more deadly than the flu for, very, for older people. Yeah, this is this, you know, we keep learning more, uh, and I know from my point of view, I was quite strongly of the view that we were overreacting earlier on, I'll, I'll admit that, but one of the things that's tempered it, and that I think in this country, the research shows that younger people are actually more worried about the disease than older people, even though they're less likely to get it. But there's another factor in there, and that is that 
it can permanently damage the health of victims, as I understand it. And if you're a young person, you mightn't be so much worried about dying, but you'd have a very legitimate concern about permanent damage to your body that might play out horribly over the rest of your life. That, that's something that I don't think I'd appreciated earlier on. I mean, I think that's true for many viral conditions that the, that the sequelae sometimes are, 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 are bad. I mean, so for the flu, for instance, there are neurologic sequelae that, that are important, even heart sequelae. Um, we're seeing some of that in COVID. The question is, how frequent is that? I think once you account for the fact that this invisible epidemic we're talking about, with, with the, so many people already got it, it's, uh, it's, it's likely that's going to be a clinically important thing to think about. But it's it's not uh, it's not as common as you would think from reading the press about it. I mean, it's not it's uh, I still think it's a it's a I mean, it's a serious condition we should think about carefully. But uh, we live our lives with lots of serious conditions that we think about carefully and still and yet still we live our lives. Um, I, I think um, the to me, I'm a health economist, so I, I always think about trade offs. And the yeah. question is, what is the trade off here? If we if we sh- shut down our lives uh, for an extended period of time. What will we get from it? What will we lose from it? And that, that to me is the key policy question, right? If we, if we, if we think about shutting down our lives for, for a long period of time, well, we get unemployment, we get, we get poverty, or especially poor people getting hurt. Uh, we get depression, we get suicides, we get um, uh, long run health effects uh, of, of, of the lockdowns on the one side versus the, the avoided cases from, the, uh, from, from COVID-19 on the other. Right, that's the benefit. Um, is it worth it? Well, the question is: Can we expect the lockdown to permanently address COVID? And the answer is no. Right, the, I, we we have not ever cured it or eliminated a disease with a lockdown. New Zealand's just discovered that. Indeed, it has. I mean, it's unfortunate, but it's it's. Uh, I, I mean, New Zealand, of course, is in, is in some sense in a unique place. It's an island, five million people. You can actually. Maybe if it could work anywhere, it would work there, right? They 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 stamped out the disease they thought, and and yet it's popped back up. Um, you know, I think a, I think I was seeing like seventy or hundred more cases already um, in just the past week. Uh, it's it's an incredibly infectious disease, hard to stamp out, uh, and you can't isolate yourself from the world forever. And yes, yeah, so and so you raise I think the the really important point that that there are trade offs, and we're going to have to make informed decisions. I'm very worried in my own country at the moment. We, like the United States, are a federation. So many of the states here have imposed incredibly severe boundary restrictions, border restrictions, but the premiers and the state governments don't wear the political cost of those tough decisions, which are very popular. The Commonwealth does because the Commonwealth is providing the financial support for people who are out of work or looking for work in these very difficult circumstances. So at vast cost to the next generation, we're keeping our economy going, uh, and but the damage is being exacerbated by the lockdowns. And this leads us back to the whole crippling Western problem, if I can put it that way, of no longer being able to have rational debates about trade-offs. And I'm wondering just how much economic and social damage we're going to do if we can't advance this debate and yet, on the other hand, if it's not conducted rationally and sensible precautions are not taken, you get the sort of problems in areas that you've seen in America. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's what I'm really afraid of, too, is, is uh, I mean, we, we, we have premised our policies on this, I think, false idea that somehow 
uh, we can just go back to a time before the disease was here and eliminate the disease. That, that is not true. It's not possible. Uh, we, have to, we have to accept reality and say, okay, how can we learn to live with this disease and this epidemic? And the cost of the lockdowns shouldn't be more than the cost of the disease. Uh, and it's hard because, as, as you pointed out, for in the, in, your, in the Australian context, and it's true everywhere, uh, the, the cost of the lockdowns um, are fall on different set of people than the people who get the disease. Uh, you're making choices between lives and lives, lives on one side, lives on the other side. The issue is that uh, the lockdown is going to impose costs on different people than, the, than, the, than, than COVID will. Uh, and it's not simply dollars. I mean, unemployment, of course, is, is bad. It's dollars, but it's also lives, right? So suicides. Um, if yeah, you yeah. actually unemployment itself and economic damage itself it itself poses cost on health, and we know that that's long term costs. Uh, life expectancy goes up with with rising income. Uh, I was looking at the the IMF forecast for for uh, for uh, Australia, and it says it says right now it's four and a half percent reduction in GDP just for this year. Yeah. And that's before the most recent shutdown. And, well, exactly. Uh, it will be more. And that, as a former legislator and somebody who's at the heart of an economically reformist government that, you know, I've said it many times before and some of my people will write in and say, stop telling us, but we actually eliminated all Commonwealth debt in Australia. And now we're flat out going back into serious debt and our children are going to inherit that, and it will impact on their lives. But but just on the on the non-economic costs, and I must say I'm very critical of some of the media who are all for lockdowns to save people's lives. And of course that's important, but it can be, you know, very emotionally lopsided or lopsided in terms of the emotions that that feeling plays to or those reporting it plays to. There's modelling conducted by Sydney University's Brain and Mind Centre and backed, I'm told, by the Australian Medical Association, says that the annual rate of suicide in this country can rise from an already pretty staggering 3,000. I mean, in a country like Australia, we are so fortunate, it's already 3,000, to 4,500, another 1,500. That is, suicides and youth suicides would make up half that increase. It's a very powerful pointer to some of the human not economic costs of these lockdowns that are not being taken into account. I mean, John, that, that has me very, very worried of uh, the suicides themselves, but also even more broadly, we're, we're taking, we're asking our youth to pay the costs of the, I mean, yeah. that's who pays these costs, these lockdowns. You have uh, delayed schooling, uh, t t essentially schooling online instead of in person. Uh, we have, uh, I mean, pe young, young people are meant to be in company with one another. We're not meant to be alone. Um, it's extremely costly uh, from a social development point of view uh, to have that. And it's, it's those young people that are paying those costs. It's, I mean, it's fine for me. I can sit in my, my nice office and talk, talk with Zoom and keep doing my job. That's fine. But it's also poor people that are paying the cost, the people who can't afford to do, to do what I'm doing. Um, I think that the, the unequal distribution of this is absolutely devastating. Uh, it's, it's poor people and young people that are paying the cost of the lockdown. And, and, and uh, not, they're, they're not the ones that are benefiting because they, they are experience the damage of COVID at a much lower rate. So that is the poor people, the young people. And, and that, this leads into another concern I have about what's happening in the West with our atomization, the fracturing of our society, where, you know, if you're from Mars, you'd say we all seem to be at war with one another. 
you know, gender lines, uh, race divisions uh, and what have you. But now we're heating up an intergenerational battle as well. And I think that is really troubling. The blunt reality is that even when this is over and we've found some accommodation and returned to some degree of normality, assuming we do, the debt hangover will fall unbelievably on the shoulders of young people. And I find that deeply disturbing. They will be very resentful. Um, many older people will not only be probably insulated, but the, in following on the pattern since the great financial crisis, their assets seem to go up in value. They become wealthier and younger people are locked out of opportunity, locked out of the opportunity to advance their housing interests and their lives. So I just don't think enough account is being taken of these things. I agree with you, John. I mean, I think in the United States, I think we're at... Uh $27 trillion in debt and counting. Uh, and we're, uh, there's a de debate over how big the next stimulus pack is going to be. Where does that money come from? It doesn't, it's going to, I mean, partly it'll come from me. I'm 50. Uh, I'll have to pay for it for some, some time. It's going to come from my kids. It's going to come from the younger generation uh, who will have that debt hanging over them for the, the rest of their lives. Um, is it worth it? I mean, that's the, that's the thing. It's like we have to, we, we almost haven't asked that question. We've just said, okay, we have this COVID disaster. Let's pay any cost whatsoever to get out of it. Yeah. But, but it's not, as you said, it's not just economic cost, the social cost and even the cost to lives, as we've, you know, the Sydney University study suggests, may be far higher than the actual disease imposes on us and it's not being reported. People are not having this information put before them. So I hope many, as many people as possible listen to this and ask the sort of questions that arise out of it. Yeah, I think, I think it's... Um, you know, if you want to make rational policy, you need to have projections, right? So this is, it's inevitable. And we've seen our fill of disease projections. I mean, they're all, all uh, you know, everyone, everyone is talking about what, what, what will the track of COVID look like if we, if, we, if we lock down, if we don't lock down, what do these epidemiologic models say? And it's completely reasonable. You want ought to have them. But at yeah. the same time, side by side, when you're making a decision about, what, about, about a policy, you want to look at the, both the benefits and the costs. We should be ha we should have projections about the the lives that'll be that the cost of these lockdowns, the the cost and lives of these lockdowns. What health costs will there be? What suicide? What what mental health costs? What suicide rates? What unemployment? Uh, how many people will lose their jobs and thus be thus not develop experience so they can uh, their human capital so they can they can constructively engage with the labor market later. Um, and we know all that kills as well, right? It's not, it's not simply costless, I lose money and, and I go on with my life. Uh, uh, if, you, if you cut down schooling, lower, well, less well-educated populace will be less healthy 10 years from now. Um, so I think it's, it's it, and you can say, look, these are uncertain. That's true, they're uncertain. That's why we have models to try to address that uncertainty as best we can. And the disease models themselves are uncertain. They haven't done a very good job either in tracking the, the disease, as you probably know, um, uh, in projecting the disease. So it's 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 uh, it's uncertainty on both sides. It's not an excuse not to consider both all the costs and the benefits together when you're making decisions about policy. Do you uh, do you feel we can do better? How do we do better at, at engaging people in a real debate about the trade-offs and the need to make more rational decisions? Because we're not very good at it now in our cultures. We were once, but we're not now. How can we, how can we get a better debate around this so we get better policies for the sake of our children in particular? 
John, I think I think part of it is we have to address our fear first, first and foremost. I mean, yeah. I think that that more than anything else has driven the division over COVID policy. This this abject fear of what the disease is. It's it's a it's a it's a deadly disease. One should be concerned, but should one put aside one's rational faculties in order to in order to, uh, it, it, just because of that fear? It makes no sense. Let's look at the. Let's look and see. Okay, how deadly is it? Let's actually co- consider all the costs and all the benefits. I, I think we have to get back to that kind of thinking that, that there are trade-offs. We can't live in a utopian world where we can pretend that the virus will somehow disappear if we just shut down hard enough. If we just pay enough pain and costs, we'll, 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 it'll it'll go away. I mean, that's not feasible. Um, I think that kind of reality, I'm actually, in some sense, John, I'm kind of hopeful. I mean, I think uh, I'm starting to see some sense that, look, th- th- we have to think about the cost. I, I saw just uh, yesterday, I saw a story that apparently in South Korea, there was a massive protest over the, the this very severe lockdown they've had for a very, very long time. Um, people around the world are feeling these costs. Real, really feeling them, uh, and and again, it's not just to their pocketbooks; it's a, it's their entire lives. Like, what's what is the purpose of our lives if not to live them? Um, and uh, so, I think uh, I think that kind of thinking will 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 start to uh, will start to take over because it's too real, John. I mean, you can't uh, you you can't just pretend like it's going to just end. When will it end? Um, and you know, th- we we hope for a vaccine. I hope for a vaccine. But do we really premise all of our all of our livelihoods on the on the on whether a vaccine can be uh, produced in an absolute record amount of time? I mean, it's it's it's. I mean, we should invest in it. We should do the science as rapidly as we can. Make sure that the that the data on it are clear so that we understand if the vaccine is produced, it's safe. But should we bet our entire society on that one outcome? Seems like an unwise bet. It it does. I'd be very interested in your professional opinion on the chances of us having something reasonable, say, by the end of next year. Because here in Australia, the experts I've spoken to have said, look, we may have something. They're cautiously optimistic, but they don't believe it would be available in any significant numbers until the end of next year. That's a long way away. Yeah, I mean, the US, what it's done is it's made a bet. So uh, we've decided to purchase large quantities of vaccine uh, candidates that have not undergone phase three trials yet. We have not undergone safety and efficacy testing in large scale. Uh, if those trials show that the drug, that the vaccine is not safe or effective, we've made a bad bet. Um, if they show that they are effective or safe, well then now we'll be have, have a large number of doses to, to deploy very, very quickly. Um, the, the thing about vaccine trials is you, uh, you have to have sufficient numbers of people because you're, you're employing them at scale. The entire population you expect to have the vaccine, right? Um, any drug that you give to the entire population, you're going to see some funny side effects here, some interactions there. You want a sufficiently large database of having tested it to tell the population honestly that, yeah, it's safe for you, no matter who you are. Um, will we have enough experience with the vaccines to convince enough of the population to take it safely in time? Even if we have enough doses, that's, that's the thing I'm wondering about. Um, and it's, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm more optimistic. I have to say, admit, I'm more optimistic than I was in April. But I, I mean, I have to say, I don't, I don't, I don't want to bet our entire society on that. I think that's a, I think that's a bad bet. Which countries do you think have managed it better than others? I'm very conscious that we are very obsessed with what's happening in our own countries in the West and, and particularly in this country, massive coverage, often driven by the political distaste without 
elaborating the point for the current president. You know, there's this Trump um, sort of um, delusion or or syndrome that just people lose their rationality. So he's seen to have mishandled COVID. So there's massive sort of talk about how it's been, how, how America's handled it. But putting that aside, in your view, who has handled it perhaps wisely and in a way that might be seen to have been more effective in, the, in, in retrospect? I mean, you have to ask them that question in the long run. We're not in the long run as yet. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you the thing, that metric that I look for to see uh, whether a country is handling it well. And it's, it's actually a very simple number. We, we know with certainty who the vulnerable are. It's older people, especially older people living in nursing homes and other environments where they're, they're closed in. Uh, countries that have handled it well have managed to protect those populations. And countries that haven't managed it well, that you've seen, or, or states that haven't managed it well, that population has suffered severely. That's particularly the case in New York, as I understand it, to take a, a part of one country. It's true in New York, but it's true around the United States. Mm. I think we have not handled it as well as we might. And there's some states that have done better than others, admittedly, but uh, we have not handled, our, have not protected our nursing home population as well as we might have. Um, I think in the Earth of Sweden, for instance, sometimes held up as, an, as a successful example. Um, I think in the early days of the epidemic, they didn't. They actually saw some spread in nursing homes that, they, that potentially might have been avoidable. They corrected course, I think, afterwards. Um, so I think in the long run, when you're judging whether a country has done well, I think that's because you know you have to judge based on what information you have at the time. We knew that that this that that the elderly were vulnerable in March. We saw that in the Chinese data, particularly vulnerable, um, and we knew that the, 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 that the disease spreads in tightly closed environments. And the policy in March was let's protect our hospitals because we were looking at Italy and thinking, oh my gosh, the hospitals are overrun there. Um, we, I think the United States did a fantastic job protecting our hospitals to the point where hospitals were empty for months. So many of them going you know, near bankruptcy. Um, and we forgot about the nursing homes in those months. Uh, so I think uh, there's, there's both, I mean, there's, there's successes and failures. It's question relative to what you know at the time. In retrospect, that's where I'm going to judge it on, is how well did we actually take advantage of the information we had? And the key piece of information is who's vulnerable. I think uh, in, in, many, in many ways, uh, I mean, most countries, in, in many, many countries, I mean, I think Australia has done well thus far. The question is, how will it do going forward? If you look at the, I was looking at the statistics on Australia, it is, it is skewed toward the older population where, where the deaths are. The number yeah. of deaths, but and but you all are not in the long run. You are in the in the intermediate run. Um, and so the question is, how well will you protect? We'll learn the lessons from the world around you uh, to protect the nursing homes, and then uh, impose co- fewer costs on everyone else who aren't really at, at, at high risk from this uh, from this disease. Right. Yeah. So that's the other thing I'll look at. How, so you were looking at t- talking about suicides before. I'm going to look at those numbers. I want to know how many. Uh, mental health problems did we cause as a result of the lockdowns? How tight uh, did the tight lockdowns affect the poor differentially? Did their did their kids not be not not you know did the did the gap between poor and rich in educational outcomes expand as a result of the lockdowns? I, I want to look at those kind of numbers. Those are numbers also we know. So those are scientific facts we knew in March. We knew that long before March. Um, so I think if you, it's hard to do an assessment on the fly, and, and obviously, as you said, people are people's minds are distorted by the political races that are happening in front of them. 
really, if, if you want to do a, a clean assessment at the, at, at the end of the day, it's, it's what do we know? How well did we act on the information we know now? The new then. I, mean. I think one of the great problems is that people are being lulled into a sense that governments can solve these problems and they'll be judged on how well they do, regardless of how much money they borrow or indeed effectively print. And there's an assumption, particularly amongst many young people who have become disillusioned with democratic capitalism, that this sort of control is good. You've just got to get the control settings right. I'm not certain that we're not seriously damaging our understanding of personal freedom and personal responsibility, which may be very damaging politically in the long term, even to the extent that people think, well, that debt doesn't matter, you just print more money. It's not true. It doesn't happen. Money that's not backed by real wealth in the end and the real creation of wealth is false money. And when confidence in it is lost, as we know, the results can be disastrous. History tells us that. We are on, I think, a very, very dangerous um, uh, precipice with all of this. We need to be very careful indeed. And I think what I'm getting at is I, I just wonder whether we've got the collective willpower now to sit down properly and analyse all of this calmly, learn the lessons and sober up rather than lurch into even more silly political decisions further down the road. And I don't want to buy into the US election. I'd love to in other contexts, but I'm not going to ask you to do that. But you can see an awful lot of emotion and an awful lot of feeling and if I can say so as somebody just looking in from the outside, not a lot of highly thought through rational discussion. It bodes very ill for future policy, in my view. Yeah, John, I mean, I, I share your concern. I mean, I think um, uh, democratic capitalism has, has yielded enormous benefits, obviously for the developed world, but also for the developing world. I mean, yeah. I think a statistic of a billion people lifted out of poverty in the last uh, 10, 20 years uh, around the world. Uh, and I think uh, our uh, our understanding of the importance of that has has shrunk in ways that has uh, astonished me. Um, and you know, you you said something really interesting. I think is really right. Uh, we we have this sense that somehow we're in a position that we have this knowledge. The government has this knowledge. You can just do the calculations. You run the model, and you figure out how to how to make the economy go, how to make COVID go away. We can just solve it. Uh, if one thing that comes out of this COVID crisis, I hope, is that we, we we lose that faith. The world is a complicated place, and the reason why democratic capitalism works is because it lets the the distributed knowledge of billions of people have their say. If you try to centralize all the decisions in one place, you're gonna you're gonna make mistakes, and we've learned that lesson the hard way over and over again. I hope we don't have to learn it the hard way again. Um, Maybe, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm tend to be optimistic by nature, so I'm, I'm hopeful that people will come out of this crisis and say, "Yeah, you know, we, we, these these computer models really didn't do us do us do a very good job for us." Um, yeah. And I agree with you about the debt. I agree with you about the uh, about the uh, uh, the problems we're, we're basically imposing on, on on younger populations that they'll face for generations to come. Um, the the borrowing is beyond my experience. I, I mean, I would have thought that, that, that we would have paid a price already. Um, but now, uh, tens, you know, $3 trillion or $4 trillion later in, in only a few months, I mean, you know, I, I don't see how a price can't be paid. There's always trade-offs. Yeah. Well, to go back to your opening remarks, uh, 
you know, and to quote a former US president, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Well, fear is an emotion that always clouds clear thinking uh, and the need to move ahead in a way that is going to maximise the opportunities into the future. And I think your contribution to it, if I can say in conclusion and thanks, has been enormous. Uh, and uh, I just hope uh, uh, that, including in my country, that many people hear what you have to say and take heed of it, Jay. Uh, you're a champion. Oh, thank you, John. I really appreciate that. I'm honoured to be on and uh, to be able to talk with you. Thank you very much indeed. You've been listening to John Anderson Direct. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.